This is our 314th time of Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus looking unto him together as a local assembly. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, please. Hebrews 9:27. I do have a written form of today's message, which will be available to all of you. I don't know how much my Spoken message will conform to those notes, but they'll both be profitable, as you know. I have to say that from time to time. Sometimes body language is off-putting. Sometimes it's very not off-putting. And I just wanted you to know I don't want to appear standoffish when I greet some of you in the hall. I'm kind of sticking with the fist bump. I might even go with Kevin, your greeting. Kevin's greeting is doubly excited to see each other. Um, my wife Pam hasn't been here because she has been spending a lot of time with her very beloved aunt Linda who is at the final stages of what's been a pretty radical blood cancer. And so with, I'm extra careful because she could actually get a, an infection that would not be that bad for us, but it might take her right out. That is her aunt. So we've, I've been careful so that she doesn't get anything from me, so that she doesn't give anything to her. So I hope you'll understand that. I, I know it can be off-putting when you come up and you want to greet somebody and they're kind of like this, but that's not my heart because I, I'm, let's just consider this message, me greeting you with a holy kiss. And from my lips to you, this is the message. And so that's that. But I like that. I think I might do that, the double hand thing. Now, at this very moment in our time, in the time in which God has given to us and allotted to us, we are told to redeem the time. What that means to redeem the time is to buy up opportunity that's afforded us in the moment this moment is our opportunity to receive the word of God, the engrafted word which is able to save our souls, which is able to edify and build up the body of Christ. Redeeming the time means listening to what the spirit of Jesus Christ has to say together in this church, but also, also always in the moments of our life. Redeeming the time means not dreaming about the past or longing for the future, but grabbing the moment as it appears for us. And so this is a special passage that we're giving our attentiveness to right now in Hebrews 9.27. Now, it seems that Karl Barth understood what Albert Einstein understood. If we're theologians, we probably shouldn't pretend to be scientists. But if we're scientists, we probably shouldn't pretend to be theologians unless we're scientists and theologians. And today we have much that is in the realm of science, where science is almost a new god to genuflect to, and all the science that is passing for science is not science. Even as all the theology that passes for theology is not good theology. As a physicist, Albert Einstein understood that time is not a continuum or what we would call a timeline, but rather a field. And as a theologian, Karl Barth understood this remarkably well. In fact, probably even better than Einstein understood it in 
terms of physics. And then there's also these other people called metaphysicians. They study metaphysics and they write books like The Theory of Everything because they think they know everything. And metaphysics is kind of like the study of everything, but there is, so there's meta, which means beyond or after physics or beyond physics. And metaphysics is an important study because it kind of studies the cosmos as it is. It's cosmology and cosmogony, the study of the cosmos, the universe, and all that's in it, all of its proportional being. So metaphysics is an important study, but theology goes beyond metaphysics. And in theology, we know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In him is embodied all time. To be in his time, therefore, is to be in the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In God's eternity, present, past, and future, yesterday, today, and tomorrow are not successive, but simultaneous. That was Karl Barth. He's not a physicist. He's a theologian. He is somewhat of a metaphysicist, which you have to be if you're a theologian, but he understood that. And this is going to be something that will come into play in our study of Hebrews has to, because as Hebrews 13.8 says, in a very climactic peak of the revelation that is called Hebrews, we understand Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the Lord of time. He is the Lord of the living and the dead. He is the king of the ages. And he came into this world for the specific purpose of a judgment, and in that judgment, he became the judge, judged for all. And so, Hebrews 9, let's just look at this, and there's going to be a lot of things where I speak very plainly to you today, but there's also going to be things that come into play with the interpretation of these verses and their context and their contextual meaning. In verse 27, then, just as it is appointed for people to die only once, a key word in Hebrews, hapax and then apothenein, which means to die once. We've studied this word once, hapax, and the word with a strong prefix, ephapax, both of which are very important words in Hebrews. Once means, as the British say, one-off, standing alone, a standalone, one-off event. And it is appointed for people to die only once. There are special cases, however, that are not indicated here. One was the case of Enoch, who walked with God and was not, because he had a testimony that he lived by faith. And piste, P-I-S-T-E-I is a word that we're going to look at very carefully. Piste, or faith. And God took him. There was a search party sent out for him, and they never found him. And so there, uh, one writer decided to write books called The Book of Enoch, One and Two Enoch. And that was a speculation of what Enoch must have seen when he left this world and was translated through the spheres and into the heavens and what he must have seen. And that's The Book of Enoch. It doesn't, didn't make the cut in terms of being in the Bible as a canonical work, but it is quoted in Jude 14, so it does have some importance or some significance. Just as it is appointed for people to die only once, 
And then we have that famous word meta, and with this death, judgment. Meta, M-E-T-A, means a lot of things. I don't know if Mark Zuckerberg knew what it meta meant when he changed the meaning of his format, uh, but the word meta means, in Hebrew, it means is dead, is dead. Meta is, means is dead. In the Greek, meta can mean with, which means it accompanies something, and it accompanies what it's talking about, death, and then we would say accompanied by judgment or accompanied by a judgment. It can also mean beyond death and beyond judgment. Beyond that, judgment. In other words, there's nothing between death and judgment. And so if someone comes back from the dead, they haven't really died because they haven't died and gone through the judgment. They have had a, an NDE, as the movie says recently. There's a movie about it, I guess, NDE, near-death experience. If these people died as appointed to people to die once, they wouldn't have lived to talk about it. They were in a near-death experience, did not mean that they entered into that decisive and final state into which we're brought by death. It's my view that we're brought into Jesus Christ's time when we leave this time, and therefore we enter into a time where we're already present to the future and therefore already present in resurrected bodies, where we, at death, face a judgment. Will there be great sorrow and grief for a sinful life that we've lived in some measure? Yes. It will be a great mourning, but it will be mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, according to Revelation 1-7, when we see him. But that great mourning or sorrow will give way to a great salvation. And it will be because we will recognize that our judge, whom we will see in our death, was judged for us. He died the death of the cross singly and alone. No one else died the death that Jesus died. He died the death that is the payment for the wages of sin, which is death. None of us die death, this once and for all death, because of the wages of sin. Only Jesus died that death death. It's an incomprehensible death, one that we can never understand but only give praise to God and God's irreversible and irrevocable and universal mercy for that death. Only Jesus, Jesus alone, the man Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and man, the one Jesus Christ in Romans 5.15, 1 Timothy 2.5, 1 Corinthians 15.22, the man He's the only man who tasted death as the wages of sin for everyone. He did it for everyone. He experienced it for everyone without exception. All are the beneficiaries of his salvific act on the cross. All without exception. And we're going to look at that. This is important to understand as we continue in this passage. So he died physically. And when he bowed his head, he had given up his spirit willingly. He expired his last breath as an act of the divine man. It was his own will. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down, he said. And so his act of physical death, in which he bowed his head after saying, it is finished, 
was following the death that he died, which is the death which is the experience of the wages of sin, the wages that sin pays out. That's an analogy. It's a fiduciary analogy, if you will. And he alone, nobody dies as the result of the wages of sin, only him. For us then, death becomes a natural part of life. It becomes the exit from this temporary, temporal, evanescent existence in which we are to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we're witnesses of Jesus Christ through words, sometimes and more often through deeds. We show our faith by our deeds. Some say they have faith and some don't have faith who say they have faith. But we are witnesses of him and we become effective witnesses of him through the Holy Spirit. So just as it is appointed for people to die once, that's not the death that is the wages of sin or the result of the wages of sin. Only Jesus paid that. And let's translate it this way because it could very well be this way. And with this death, judgment. With, meaning with this death, judgment. Accompanying this death, judgment. So there is the leaving of this body, the entering into Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But in entering into him, we enter into the judge who was judged for us. So we enter into the fruit of our justification and our life. And we do experience, and we should all know this, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what we have done in our bodies, whether good or bad. And that is going to amount to a judgment by fire. The fire isn't harmful. The fire is purifying. The fire is judging in the sense that it blows away everything that bound us in this life to a sinful life. Everything that resulted in us from our own selfish desires and egocentricity. It's all burned away. So you say, well, some people have a big bonfire and others less of a bonfire. Probably. But we know this, that whatever the case, the foundation remains the same on the building that burns or is tested by fire. No other man can lay that foundation but the foundation that is Jesus Christ. He alone is the foundation. He alone died the death that is the wage of sin. So he died the death of the cross. The rest of us, well, we come to our end. There's a desperation today, both in medicine and elsewhere, to prolong our lives in this life because this life is perceived to be the only life. I'm not saying to be careless, I'm not saying to be, but I am saying to be a little bit carefree about it because death is the end of our evanescent existence in this life. Now, in this life, we live in an evil age, and the days are evil. Redeem the time because the days are particularly evil today. What you're doing now is a very important thing. It's not what everybody does. 
I've seen a couple of glances at a fo football games lately. The fanatical joy and standing, and especially in Philadelphia Phillies, they stand the whole game. And it's like a, this attentiveness to the game and the players and the score. And the, it's like, if, imagine if that enthusiasm was directed toward the word of God. It isn't. Because the days are evil, that's why. We live in an evil age already in Galatians 1.4, and within that evil age, we get to live in particularly evil days. If you don't believe that, well, I was going to say watch the news, but if you don't believe that, it's even better to find out how evil the days are. Go to a college and sit in on a class or two. You'll find out how evil the days are and how education has become indoctrination and indoctrination that leads to enslavement. So a lot of people get a lot of TikTok, but very little doctrine today. And it's the word of God that's going to free us. So, well, see, I could be a preacher too if I wanted to. I guess I could preach. Just as it was appointed for people to die, it is appointed for people to die only once. There is a special case. When the Lord comes, it isn't to secret away a bunch of people so they disappear and planes crash and ships go ashore and smash into things and people, patients are disappear from the bed while the doctor's doing the surgery on them or the doctor disappears and drops the knife in the person and all these, that's not what happens when Jesus returns. When he returns, it's for the restoration of all things, not to rescue a few people out of this because they are escapists and want to be out of here. And so when he comes, and we should anticipate his coming, it will be to restore all things it will be an effective presence in which the dead are raised. And those that are alive and remain will be special cases because they will not sleep the sleep of death, but they will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. There is another special case coming, a special case not of a single person like Enoch or of a single person like Elijah who is carried up in a chariot of fire, but a special case of a generation who are alive and remain when the Lord is coming again, when he comes again. And when will that be? Acts 3, 19 to 20, God will tell him. He will send Jesus, who is in heaven now at the right hand of the Father. He will send him bodily, as he is at the right hand of the Father, back to this time for the times of refreshing, for the times of the new creation of all things, for the universal revelation of his salvific grace, for the scripture says he will come again without sin. Chorus hamartia. Chorus hamartia. Without sin. And that means that he, has, he came the first time without sin. Hebrews 4.15 says. He is altogether like us except without sin. He was without sin. In his first coming, however, he came to be made sin. He who knew no sin and was without sin became sin. He comes again without sin. He is the sinless son of God. And he comes to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Ah, but there's better news than that. You thought I was going to say, ah, but there's bad news. I don't say that. I preach the gospel. I'm not a bad news preacher. I'm a good news preacher. So here we have it. Just as it is appointed for people to die once, and with this death, let's say it's with this death. Meta equals with. Or let's say after. It's after, like most translations have. And after this death, judgment. 
Either way, what it means is nothing happens between death and the judgment. There's nothing between it. In other words, you don't come back and talk about it. There is death, one off, once and for all, standalone, a sui generis event for you, a standalone event, and then there is the judgment. And it could, it seems in both cases, whether it's meta with or meta after, that the judgment occurs almost instantaneously with the death. Your death is not a judgment. There's only one person whose death was a judgment, and that's Jesus Christ, the righteous judge. In first, Second Timothy 4.8, to him all judgment was entrusted by the Father because he is the Son of Man who is seen coming in the clouds of glory. The, his death was a judgment. The death of Jesus Christ was the judgment for the judge to whom all judgment was committed was judged in our place and for us. He alone died the death, the judgment death, for the wages of sin. And what did he say in John 9, 39? I'm going off kilter here a little bit, so like I said, the notes won't shape up to be quite like the verbal message today. But what did Jesus say in John 9, 39? I came into this world for a judgment. I came into this world for a judgment. And then he said something very curious after that. He said, so that those who are seeing, blepo, will not see, and those who are not seeing will see. What is he saying? The judgment that he came into this world for was to be judged for all people. He is the judge. He came into the world to be judged for us. And what does that do to people? It makes people that sit in churches and pews, and it makes preachers and priests and evangelists and people who claim to be apostles, or in one case, apostles, it makes them blind because they cannot perceive that, as the song said, a lamb saves the souls of men. They, cannot, they, they, they can't see that. They can't see a crucified God being our Savior. And so people that are not seeing that will be made to see that. We have been made to see that. We came to the word blind, and now we see that Jesus Christ and him crucified is our Savior God. That's an unusual thing. It never would have come to our minds. It never would have dawned on us suddenly well let's think about who god could be how about if he's nailed to a tree beaten beyond recognition marred beyond all men and endures judgment for all people let's make him our say nobody would ever think of that and so we were blind to it we came to the word blind to it but now we see others say they see but they are blind because they don't see Jesus Christ and him crucified as being the central reality of all things. They don't see Jesus as the reality of all things. I came into this world for a judgment, he said. And it was on the occasion of healing a blind man who was born blind. And he said, I came into the world for a judgment. The judgment that he came into the world for was him dying a death, which is a judgment, for all. So just as, as it appointed for people to die once, and with this death the judgment, or after this death the judgment, 
or beyond this death, the judgment. What is our judgment that we experience at death? The realization of our justification. Because he who is judged for us all, as Romans 5.18 says, he justified all. All receive justification and life because his death was a judgment for all. And so we, coming into the presence of God, we may immediately be rather shocked and amazed at his holiness and kind of fall apart maybe for a moment at his holiness, bow as his whole, at his holiness, and then realize immediately the judgment of his grace upon our lives, the judgment of his kindness, the judgment which is mercy upon us, that we, will have, we have been resurrected unto life that is eternal, life that is with God, life that is on Jesus Christ's time, life in justification. For when he was justified, all were justified. When he died, all died, 2 Corinthians 5.14. But he who died was justified in Romans 6.7 and Romans 8.34. So he, in Romans 3.26 even, it says that, he who was justified by his faithfulness, and by the way, Phil's, Henry's message was excellent. I recommend that you hear it. It's a new one, Power Gospel 161 today. It was on this very subject, faithfulness of Christ versus our personal faith. We will realize that his faithfulness, the faithfulness of the Son of God, was the reason for our justification and the reason for the gift of life for all. So the judge and the judged is right here with death being a judgment. Only in his case was death a judgment. In our case, death is a release into life indeed, life eternal, life lived in all its fullness, in all of its intended fullness in the presence of Jesus Christ. So just as it is appointed for people to die once, hapax apothenen, and with this death, judgment. So also Christ, once offered up on a Pharaoh for the assuming of the sins of many. Please understand here that to interpret this verse, you have to put in a couple of bracketed comments because that's what we're supposed to do. That's not, that's not something that's illegitimate. In fact, pastors aren't worth their salt if they don't do this. Nehemiah 8.8, 8, they read the scriptures and gave the sense. I'm giving the sense of this verse now. In Hebrews 9.28, it says, So Christ, dealing with this once, so Christ. The idea of once carries over into this passage. Once offered up on a pharaoh. For the assuming of the sins of many, the bearing of the sins of many, if you want. It's a, it's a quotation of Isaiah 53, 12 here. For the bearing of the sins of many. Will appear, and that word isn't phanerao in this case, it's apthesete, apthesetai actually. In the future passive indicative, it means he will appear to be seen. He will appear not appear to be seen, but appear to be seen by all people, everyone who's waiting for him. And we'll explain what that means. 
So let's look at the verse now, 9:27 and 28. And, not, and just as it is appointed for people to die only once, and with this death, or after this death, separate from this death, but immediately after, we could say, judgment, so also Christ once offered up for the assuming, and what that means is, or the bearing, means the bearing of the judgment by death of their sins, the sins of the many. Now, we've realized what the many means, I think, many, many times. We have realized what many means. In Hebrews 9.28, this writer quotes that little section. He bore the sins of many, which means he assumed the judgment on these sins for many. But what does many mean? Well, if you go to Isaiah 53.11, which Paul did, Paul was thinking of and, in fact, interpreting Isaiah 53.11 when he wrote Romans 5.18-19. For in Romans 53.11, the original text says, by his ordeal, not his knowledge, but by his experience or by his ordeal. That's the experience of death for all, as Hebrews 2.9 puts it. He experienced death for everyone. By his ordeal, that is, his experience of death for everyone. And what does it say? My righteous servant will justify many. And no matter how your translation reads it, it's probably close to that. By his knowledge, which is better translated as his experience or his ordeal at the cross. It's referring to his ordeal at the cross. I could fan this out for you. It would take a couple hours. I won't do it today, even though there's not a Steeler game. So I will... I'll tell you this much, by his ordeal, my righteous servant, which is interpreted to be Jesus Christ all throughout the New Testament, by every New Testament writer, that whole passage in Isaiah 40 to 55, that whole section called Deutero-Isaiah, the suffering servant is identified as Jesus Christ who bore the sins of many. Paul took Isaiah 53, 11, my righteous servant will justify many by his ordeal, and took it to mean the universal impact of the cross of Christ. Because what does Paul do with that verse? He takes it into Romans 5, really 5, 15 to 19, and he talks about the righteous one, the one man, Jesus Christ, whose one righteous act in Romans 5.18, which led him to the death of the cross, justified all. It doesn't say many there. It says all without exception. All without exception. Paul interpreted the many that, that the righteous servant would justify through his ordeal of the cross. Paul interpreted that as the justification of all in Romans 5.18. Take Romans 5.18 back into Isaiah 53.11. Take 53.11 into Romans 5.18 because that's what Paul did. And the righteous one is none other than Jesus Christ. And the righteous servant is none other than Jesus, the one man, Jesus Christ, who through his one righteous act justified and gave life to all of humanity. And he makes sure we know that it's all because he says that all in Adam were constituted as sinners. And so through Christ's act, all in Christ and that means all of humanity that were once in Adam and classed in Adam are justified. 
In other words, let's just use plain speaking. Paul interpreted the many in Isaiah 53:11 to be all in Romans 5:18, and also in Titus 2:11. If you want to go there, or in 1 Corinthians 15:22, if you want to go there, Paul interpreted the many as an understatement for the word all from Isaiah 53:11 to. Romans 5.18. Now, the writer of Hebrews isn't Paul, but he certainly agrees with Paul. So why wouldn't he take the, uh, the many in Isaiah 53.12, whose sin Jesus bore or assumed the judgment of, and make that all? And that's exactly what he does. And though you can't see it on the surface, he is saying that all here can be substituted for many. So let me do that. And just as it is appointed for people to die only once, that's all people with mighty few exceptions. And with this death, judgment, so also Christ once offered up for the sins of the many. And that means for the judgment by death of the sins of the many, meaning all people will appear... That means to become visible to everyone a second time without sin to those eagerly waiting for him. Remember I said before, most of life is waiting, and that's true on two levels. Most of life, we're waiting. If you're married, most of life is waiting. I'm speaking as a sexist, of course. Men wait a lot for their wives, and they're, they're going to go out to dinner, and you get all dressed, and then you spend about 20 minutes pacing in the hall. You're wait Most of your life is waiting. It's waiting. And so um, let's make sure Pam doesn't get this message. But anyways, the life is waiting. And, but in the waiting, it's anticipating. And anticipation is indeed the spice of life, so there's not anything too bad about waiting in most cases. We're waiting for his appearance. His appearance is imminent, and we should have an imminent expectation. In fact, if we love Jesus Christ, it is evinced by or evidenced by an imminent expectation of his appearing, of his coming to us in the parousia, which means his effective presence with us. And so those eagerly awaiting him for salvation. So this Many interpreters would say, now look at this. This is very, very localized here. He's going to bring salvation only to those who are eagerly waiting for him. Well, let's look at that now. What does it mean here? And this is, what, this is why my notes are a little screwed up, because I woke up this morning and wrote this rather spontaneously. I, I always say, Lord, I commit my spirit to you. Direct me in the way I should go in the word. And he always, I, I don't want to say, yeah, I do want to say always, takes me in a direction I, don't think, I didn't think I was going to go here. This he's talking about here is a definitive and universal disclosure for which the teaching pastor who wrote Hebrews proclaims in this way, Christ once offered up, for the assuming of the sins of the many, and that, and that means their judgment. To assume them, to bear them, is to bear their judgment. Will appear a second time without sin to those eagerly awaiting him for salvation. First of all, the sins of many, Isaiah 53, 12, means the sins of all, just as Paul interpreted Isaiah 53, 11, as the justification of many by the ordeal of Christ's 
God's righteous servant as the justification and gift to all in Romans 5, 18 to 19. Those who are eagerly waiting for him then means those who believe in him. Those who, how can you be eagerly awaiting for someone that you don't believe exists? Or if you do believe he exists, how can you believe and how can you wait for him eagerly if you don't believe he's coming? Or if you believe he's coming after 35,000 years like a lot of preterists believe. They, they delay hope and therefore that is one of the most egregious errors in church history is the delaying of hope out thousands of generations out there somewhere so you're left without hope or with a deferred hope. God doesn't defer hope. God does not defer our hope. The coming of Christ is in fact imminent. It is in fact to be expected imminently. The church in its normality says the words Maranatha, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And this in 1 Corinthians 16, 22 is related to loving the Lord Jesus Christ. If you love our Lord Jesus Christ, you have an imminent expectation which evinces or evidences that love. So what does it mean that he will come to those who are eagerly waiting for him. It does mean those who are believing in him. All who love his appearing. And that word, and you'll see it in print somehow, is epiphania, where we get our word epiphany. And you can look at that, in fact, in 1 Timothy 6.14 and Titus 2.13, and where the word epiphany is used. Epiphany is like phanerosis. It's an appearing. It's a sudden appearing. It's a brilliant appearing. It's a glorious appearing. It's his parousia. We called it his third coming again. After his first coming where he suffered and bore our sins, he comes again first in resurrection. Then he spends 40 days evidencing and giving proof of his immortality and incorruptibility before his disciples over a course of 40 days, which may not be literal, but it is a segment of time that corresponds to the 40 years where God manifested himself to people in the wilderness, and they did not believe in this case, Jesus himself, for 40 days, communicates himself and gives evidence of his immortality and incorruptibility that was brought to light through the gospel to his disciples who did believe. So he is coming, and those who are waiting for him eagerly are those who believe. Get that down because that's exactly correct. Those who are waiting for him means those who believe in him, and it also means all who love his appearing. And that, again, is epiphany. That's 1 Timothy 6.14, Titus 2.13. And in 1 Timothy 4, or 2 Timothy 4.8, those who love his appearing, it talks about. What does it mean to love his appearing? It means that when he comes, there will be some who loved him and therefore longed for his appearance. And there's going to be a particular experience for these people who longed for his coming and longed for his appearance. They'll still be surprised because of the glory that's manifested that they couldn't even imagine. But they are those who loved his appearing. So then, this is his third coming again in our 
scheme that we put together in a previous increment. And so his resurrection is his first coming again, his coming in the spirit in John 14, 18 and following is his second coming again. His third coming again is his parousia, his effective presence in which he brings everything under his feet, raises the dead, and brings about the new creation of all things. That parousia, it's called, his effective omnipotent presence in love is to be compared with his second appearing, not to be confused with his second appearing in Hebrews 9.28. That's where we are. So epiphania for appearance is also used in 2 Timothy 1.10, which refers to his resurrection, where he came in resurrection from the dead in order to what? To display to his disciples who could hear him, touch him in 1 John 1, 1 and, and also Luke 24, 39, touch him, and in touching him, touch incorruptible, immortal flesh, which we will have. That's our hope. The immortality and incorruptibility that has been brought to light in his resurrection. So there is the first coming again of Jesus is his coming again in the resurrection and the 40 days. His second coming again is his coming with the Spirit, called the Spirit of Jesus Christ, by which he is with the church. He moves among the lampstands. He walks among us, and he lives among us, and he is there whenever two or three are gathered together. He is there in the Spirit, in the presence of the Spirit. His third coming again is when he becomes visible to everyone who ever lived at all times, when all the dead were from all time are raised from the dead, whether they believed or not in this in this life, in this time of living, they are raised from the dead unto life, unto the judgment of justification. That's this, the third coming again, which we make equal to his second appearing in Hebrews 9.28. And so, Jesus' decisive and universal salvific appearing will be a welcome event to those who were eagerly expecting him all the time. It will be a surprise to those who are not eagerly expecting him. It will involve for them a mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, a profound sorrow in Revelation 1-7. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn over him as over the loss of an of an only born son, an only child. But that mourning, as according to 2 Corinthians 7.10, yields to what? A salvation that will never be regretted. A salvation that will never be regretted. The judgment that we will all face, believers or unbelievers, will be a judgment that may involve for a moment some sorrow, some profound grief, some profound, not that we remember our sins, but we remember our unworthiness to be justified. We remember our lives over the course of our lives, and we are in some regards very sorrowful, but the Lord is there embracing us immediately to comfort us in our sorrow. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted instantly by the Lord, and there will be a glorious, wonderful salvation that comes immediately upon the heels of that sorrow, or that grief, or that mourning, or in some cases, shame. And so, that he is 
bringing seen or seen bringing salvation to all who are waiting for him does not exclude the unbeliever from salvation. I was reminded of that this morning. Listen to Phil's five-minute message. We are not saved by our faith, but by his faithfulness. Therefore, all, whether believers or not, are beneficiaries of his salvific act, of his judgment death, of his judgment for us, of his being of the lamb and the sacrifice for us. So that he is seen bringing salvation. He comes without sin the second time, just like he came without sin the first time. He passes through the heavens without sin. He represents us without sin. At a moment in time, at a, an incomprehensible moment in time, he became sin for us. Can we comprehend the ordeal that he endured? Can we comprehend his endurance of the cross? No. It's immeasurable, it's incomprehensible, it's inaccessible to our souls, although I think little by little, the love behind it will be manifested because when you see eternity and you see the souls in eternity, you see them in awe, salvation belongs to you, and glory and honor and praise and power and dominion, it all belongs to you. That's the fruit of understanding and the fruit of insight as to what he experienced in his ordeal, the ordeal of the death of the cross. So when he appears a second time, he will be bringing salvation, it says. It doesn't just say bringing salvation to all who are waiting for him. He says he will appear again to all who are waiting for him with salvation. He's coming with salvation, therefore, not just for those that are waiting for him. Let me explain a little bit further on this angle. That he is seen bringing salvation for all those who are waiting for him does not exclude the unbeliever from salvation, nor does it exclude those who are dead in sins or dead in graves or urns, for the same principle pertains as pertains in 1 Timothy 4, 9 to 10. The Timothys, the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, are interpretive tools to understand everything Paul wrote, everything the PT wrote in Hebrews. They are interpretive tools. They mean something in terms of interpretation. What does 1 Timothy 4, 9 to 10 say? Paul says we suffer, but we suffer because we hope. We suffer whatever we have to suffer on the mission field as witnesses of Jesus Christ, whatever it is, come what may, because we have a hope that God is the Savior of all people, especially those that believe, especially those that believe. All people, especially those who believe, not, as it's often been said, exclusively those who believe. So he comes a second time to bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for him, who are those who believe, but not exclusively to those who are eagerly waiting for him, and therefore not exclusively to those who believe. He brings salvation to all, we could even say it this way, for whom did Jesus Christ die? 
He died for the sins of all mankind, for all the world. He became the propitiation and is. Not only was he propitiation for us yesterday, he is that today. He will be that forever. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, 1 John 2, 1, 1 Peter 3, 18, Romans 1, 17, Acts 22, 14, wherever you want to go, Isaiah 53, 11, the righteous one, the righteous servant, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, for all the unrighteous, died in 1 Peter 3, 18. He, the propitiation for our sins, that means he provided satisfaction and approval by God that could not be brought to God by all the sacrifices offered under the law. He, his death, brought God an approval, a satisfaction for the sins, not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ was, at the moment of his death on the cross, the propitiation for our sins. But was he that before that? Well, he's the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. So yesterday, no matter how far yesterday goes back, he is the propitiation for our sins. On the cross yesterday, he is the propitiation for our sins. Today, Jesus Christ the righteous in the present tense is the propitiation for our sins. Not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. He will be that tomorrow, and in the endless tomorrows, ace Aona, to the endless ages, he will always be the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, the righteous one for everyone else. So when he appears, he brings salvation, period, over and out. When he comes, those who are eagerly waiting for him will be those who believe. But he comes to bring salvation not only to those who believe, but to everyone because God is the Savior of all mankind, especially but not exclusively those who believe. You say, repeat that again. Yeah, right. I'm just riding on the wave here. I'm on the crest of the wave here. This is, I'm surfing on a 115-foot wave here. I saw a picture of a guy recently did a 115-foot wave surfing. And he's like, you watch him forever. And he lived. That's me. I'm surfing on a 115-foot wave here. I can't repeat it. I won't be able to repeat these words again. That's why they're in, somewhat of them are in print. And so those who are eagerly waiting for him are those who love him and look forward to his appearing. If you think someone's going to appear and delay his coming endlessly, you're not waiting for him at all. And you begin to what? Jesus said those who believe that the master delays, what do they do? They start beating up their fellow servants. They start attacking fellow Christians. They start doing weird things and they start comparing themselves with others, measuring themselves by others, watching social media instead of looking unto the Lord Jesus Christ and getting into the scriptures, letting their children spend hours a day playing games instead of training them in the scriptures, taking them away from church because they want them to do more horseback riding and bowling rather than having to concentrate after all year, all week in school they had to concentrate. No, they didn't. So now they've got to go to Sunday school and concentrate. Oh, how those poor little darlings. Let's let them waste their lives away then and become losers in life by saving them from doctrine. 
We've got to save them from concentration. There's pain in concentration. There's pain. When I read Karl Barth, there's pain. I, I read for three hours of Karl Barth, I have to go get a donut. I have to walk around the block. I have to walk five hills, four hills in Oakmont. I have to get my heart rate up. I have to, because it's exhausting. But the concentration's worth it. You're hearing some of it today. The, the, the fruit, the product of it. And so, those who are eagerly waiting for him are those who love him and look forward to his appearing. They, like all people everywhere and at all times, will be the beneficiaries of his free and saving grace. But those who love his appearing will what? Receive a wreath of righteousness, a crown of righteousness, placed upon their head by who? The righteous judge. 2 Timothy 4.8. Those who love his appearing will receive from him, Jesus Christ, the righteous judge. Who is the righteous judge? The judge who judges righteously. How, what was the most righteous judgment that ever happened in history? When the righteous judge went off the bench and went into the criminal stand and walked away with handcuffs and took the judgment of the accused. That was the most righteous judgment that ever happened. And those who think they see what Christianity is are blind to that. They can't see that. But blessed are you if you do see these things. Because you see that in a crucified Savior is the save salvation of the world. And so, those who are eagerly waiting for him are those who believe. He brings salvation to them, but not exclusively to them. And in fact, as we hit another line of reasoning, all are eagerly waiting for him, whether they know it or not anyways. How do I get that? From Romans 8, 19 to 23. It says that all creation, not just the human beings, but all creation has within them a waiting, an intense expectation. Why? Because they were made subject to futility, subject to need, not by their own will, but by the will who created them, of the one who created them. And they are always in need. They want something more. They intensely desire something better, and they don't even know that in their intense desire for something better, they are intensely, eagerly desiring the coming of Jesus Christ. They don't know it yet. They don't know the name. They can't put a name on their wish. They can't put a name on their desire, their ambition. And so they distort and pervert their ambition in every which way that's possible. It's all over the place today because they don't know for whom they are waiting. They may be waiting for Godot. That's for the literary members of the congregation. But anyways, they are all, people everywhere, at all times, are the beneficiaries of his free and saving grace. Otherwise, it's not free and it's not grace. If it's unconditional, then it has to be universal. Otherwise, it's not unconditional. If it's conditioned on something, that it only belongs to people who believe. If it's unconditional, it belongs to everybody by God's free grace who chose, in Hebrews 9.27, 
and in Romans 11.32 to show his mercy to everyone. And so what did he do? He made sure that you knew, that I knew, that at one point in everybody's life, they did not believe and they were disobedient. And so what God did was said, I can put everybody, Jews and Gentiles, into one category of unbelief and disobedience. And because I did that, God says, and I can put everybody under the category of unbelief and disobedience, then I can have mercy on, mercy on everybody. So what is the condition on me? I always say to, to God, thank you, Father, for, that I met the condition for salvation. And you know what the condition was? I was disobedient and unbelieving. He only has mercy on all those who are disobedient and unbelieving. And so he justifies us against our resistance of him. And that's his great. That's why we call it free grace. That's why we call it universal grace. So one more thing here. I'm speaking plainly. We receive a, right, a wreath of righteousness from the Lord, the righteous judge, if we indeed love his appearing which means we love him. And loving him, we have an imminent expectation of his appearing. The judge, the righteous judge, is the judge who not only was judged for them, but who also judges righteously and whose, quote, reward is with him to repay each person according to what he has done. Does that fit in grace? Of course it does. It's Revelation 22:12. It's 2 Corinthians 5:10. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, being justified and having life, yes, but we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the recompense, or we could say the paycheck for the things we've done in our body, whether good or bad. The good simply is becomes translated into rewards that are allegorically referred to as silver, gold, and precious stones. The bad deeds doesn't mean we receive hell for them. It just simply means they burn up. They're incinerated. It's a bonfire. And so everyone ends up being saved after the bonfire because nobody can lay another foundation than that which was already laid for salvation, which is Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. So then, but does he still judge or evaluate us or assess our lives? Of course he does. And I'm always mindful of this. He's going to assess my life. He's going to evaluate my life life, my ambitions, my intentions. And that's why I think it's so beneficial to be under the word of God because the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces the dividing asunder soul and spirit and is a critic right now of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It critiques the mentality and the intentionality, which does what? It prepares us to have a much smaller bonfire on the day of judgment. Blow off the word. Be enthusiastic about everything else. Have other gods before you except the God that's for you. And see what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. You think Maui was a fire? There'll be a fire. And you'll end up standing and maybe, thank you, Lord, <coughs> 
for that salvation. <laughs> that's, a, that's a human analogy. I'm speaking now by all, to all of us who have the infirmity of not having perfect spiritual understanding. If we're attentive to his word, if we're intelligent by hearing what the Spirit is saying, not just in the church, to the church like we are now, which is really sets the tone for the rest of the week, but listening to the Spirit all the time, just listening, silent, be still and know that I am God, is the biggest art we'll ever do. It'll be the biggest work of art we ever did. We were still and knew that God was God. In realizing that God was God, we realized that we aren't. God. We were still. In the stillness, we hear his still, small voice. We adhere to it. He gives us the grace to obey that. What do I preach on today, Father? Well, preach on what I just did. I, I did what he said to do. Well, how am I going to do that? By my spirit, says the Lord. Not by power, not by might, not by intellect, not because you went to a school in which you were indoctrinated with Marxist philosophy half the time. No, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The spirit of grace, the spirit of truth, the spirit of reality. And so if we're attentive to his word, if we're intelligent, and by intelligent I mean hearing what the spirit is saying, intelligent with the mind of Christ, if we are reasonable... And if we have offered our bodies to God as living sacrifices, if we are responsible stewards of our gifts, and if we love him, then we are not only expecting his imminent coming, but we have as our ambition to be pleasing to him. 2 Corinthians 5.9 comes before 5.10. For we have this as our ambition, to be pleasing to him. Whether in the body or out of the body, Paul said, we have this ambition, this aspiration, to be pleasing to him. For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive in our bodies what we have done for our deeds, whether phalos or agathos. And so, we make it our Ambition to be pleasing to him. So how do you do that? Hebrews helps. And I'm going to close with this. Hebrews helps. You know what it says in Hebrews 11.6? Enoch walked with God and was not. Disappeared. The search party never found him. Enoch walked with God and was not. Why? Because he had this testimony that he pleased God. But then what does it say after Hebrews 11.5? In 11.6 it says, there is, it's impossible to please him except by what? By faith. Faith. What must we do to do the works of God that will please you, Lord? And the Lord said, believe on the one whom God has sent. That's doing the work of God. Believing. Believing becomes the essential inner motivator for everything including love. Faith works by love including hope, including deeds of love, deeds of benevolence, deeds of beneficence, deeds of mercy, deeds of kindness, deeds of forgiveness, deeds of preventing accusation, deeds of peacemaking between hostile parties, deeds motivated by faith. So we make it our aim to be pleasing to him, and that means we simply make it our aim 
to be believing and to live by faith. You know what the word is? Piste, P-I-S-T-E-I, piste, which means in its form, in its case in the Greek, P-I-S-T-E-I, you'll see it in print, means by faith, by faith. How do we please him then? By faith. Where do you find piste? Let me close with this, and I know you'll get them all down if you're note takers, because I'm going to do it very slowly and methodically. Hebrews 11, 3, If we love the Lord, Jesus, we say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And he says, yes, indeed, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gaze into the perfect law of liberty. And I thank you, Father, that you have allowed me to survive that wave and that you've allowed the congregation to survive that very high wave of the water of your word. Cleanse us by it, Father. Cleanse us of false ambition. Cleanse us of dead works. Purify our conscience, Father, as you have done through the blood of Christ. We thank you, Father, and I personally thank you for this congregation of believers, some of whom have shown faithfulness to your word for decades. This does not go without my notice, and I am so grateful for the greatest deed that we could ever give and ever contribute to the body of Christ and to the Lord is our faithful attentiveness upon his word. And for that, I praise you, Father. Amen.